Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Trankel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today to have Mike Keller from Messick, Lauer & Smith. Mike, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, so a couple of weeks back, I was on Mike's new podcast, relatively new podcast, In the Queue. And Mike, as I mentioned, is with the law firm Messick, Lauer & Smith. His primary focus at the firm is providing guidance and expertise on contract terms for vendor contracts and agreements. So, Mike, this also relates to third-party due diligence and NCUA guidance and all that that might entail. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. And Mark, thanks for uh, shouting out the podcast. It was a great time having you on. We talked about a little bit of a different topic, but I think where we come from with regards to NCUA guidance, right, is like that's the touchstone. And then you kind of get into the nitty gritty from there. You got it. Yeah. There's a lot of good information and guidance and the letter to credit unions. I know you have an article on your website about third party due diligence that you wrote on, on how you assist your clients. But the third party due diligence letter that's out there, I believe it's almost 15 years old now, but there's a lot of principle-based guidance there that has stood this test of time for the most part. But why don't you speak a little bit, Mike, about how you assist your clients, whether they're CUSOs or credit unions, as it relates to big picture, the third-party due diligence of vendor management? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I think where I always like to start with this is taking a look at that big picture, right? Because there is that supervisory letter that you had mentioned, Mark, but outside of that, just like third party relationships to begin with, right? So I think most notably, they're increasing, right? Over the past decade, for sure. And it seems like that's the trajectory. And I think what credit unions can get from third party relationships is they offer expertise in areas that credit unions aren't familiar with themselves. They can expand service offerings and products to members in what's a very competitive marketplace. And it really does help credit unions increase efficiencies and economies of scale by really leaning on that vendor. So they offer a lot of opportunities to credit unions, but at the same time, and I'm sure you're well aware, right, that credit unions are ultimately responsible for their compliance obligations. They're ultimately responsible for conducting these activities and ensuring that these services are offered in a safe and sound manner. So they need to find the right balance of inviting risk through third-party relationships while also making sure that they're competitive in a very competitive marketplace. You can outsource anything, right? Do you lease or buy? Do you manufacture it or do you go out and lease it from somebody? And it's the same kind of concept, but ultimately right. the responsibility lies with the board of directors and then the top level management to deal with it. So, and you're right, it just keeps continuing to grow in the challenging market we're in right now is finding employees too. That makes it even a little bit probably more of a growth market since the pandemic and things like that, that if you can't hire the people internally, you do have to outsource it. And then how do you mitigate that risk? So definitely a growing area of of operation for probably every credit union. So let's speak a little bit to the things that you assist credit unions with specifically as it relates to either the letter to credit unions or when you get a new client that says, hey, we need some help with third-party vendors, what are the first steps? 
Yeah. So what I offer for our clients is I really help them through the contract management phase, right? So we get a lot of different types of contracts, a lot of different types of service offerings. I primarily review those agreements first to make sure that they're legally permissible, right? You would be surprised. You do get some contracts that do not include everything that they need to from a regulatory standpoint. So we need to clean that up for sure. And then beyond that point too, I like to identify for credit unions areas of risk that they're, the personnel who I deal with in particular need to be aware of that ultimately could elevate to the board depending on the type of vendor it actually is, right? So that's kind of my approach. And then we also offer, I definitely do negotiations as well with these vendors to help our credit unions negotiate that landscape. I think there's an old adage that, hey, this is a huge vendor. We kind of have to accept this contract as is. I think that in a lot of areas, that does lead to a lot of frustration in the industry and definitely is the case. But all these terms are negotiable too. And I think it's important to get that message across as well. Well, that's a great point because you got to play to win, right? And so if you don't bring those questions to the vendor, you're not going to have that opportunity. And I presume at your firm, you see new vendors, but you see the same vendors over and over. So you've got some context that a credit union or a CUSO going into a relationship blind, if you will, without your assistance, they might not know where they might be able to push back. But since you've been able to glean that from other negotiations, you know where you might be able to push. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think you nailed it there too, Mark, right? Our firm is QSOLaw.com, right? So we do help form and kind of lead QSOs through the process of working with credit unions too. So from that perspective, right, we do know exactly what credit unions are looking for in these agreements too. So we do help QSO structure those agreements with that in mind too. But yeah, I think when you do see, like I said, there's a lot of consolidation of vendors in the space now too. So you do kind of see a lot of the same agreements or at least the same types. So you do know what to expect and how you can push And that can sometimes work to your advantage, especially when you're dealing with different types of vendors. You got it. And so you mentioned areas of risk. Is it legal negotiations and areas of risk? Can you maybe expand upon the areas of risk? Would that be member data and protection of privacy and things like that? Yeah, that's certainly a big one, right? Typically, when you're kind of coming to this decision, right, when it comes to a service offering that you want to offer to your members, right, kind of make that first determination as to is this something that we can handle in-house or is this something that we need to outsource, like you said. And if you are going to outsource, it's a whole different type of risk appetite and risk profile that you're looking at there, right? So when member information is shared, that is obviously the starting point, I think. So as you're assessing that vendor at the outset, that needs to be a consideration. And then when you're going through due diligence and kind of verifying the vendor's internal, that's an area where you're obviously looping in your own IT expertise, whether that's in-house or external itself, because that's an area that you need to stay on top of, not only just from a supervisory guidance says that you need to have a full understanding as to what the vendor has from an internal control process, but it's an ever-evolving area too, right? Like there's updates in that area almost daily, it seems like. Cybersecurity is a huge area that's on the NCUA's radar, so it most certainly has to be. And I think that's a great area to start when it comes to risk, especially when member information is being shared. Yeah, and cybersecurity is ever-present in every arena, but the NCUA board and NCUA leadership has had that in their priority letter for exam priorities year after year. It's never going to go away. The board members often speak about the fact that that's what makes them not be able to sleep at night. So I could see why that would be a focus. You mentioned the due diligence. The supervisory letter has... That's one of the three pillars of the supervisory letter. 
risk assessment, planning, due diligence, and risk measurement. Maybe we should walk through risk assessment and planning a little bit to talk about what credit unions and QSOs uh, should be thinking about as it relates to that. Yeah, sure. I think even to like take a, a little bit step back, just like as we kind of walk through each of these individual phases, just kind of like how the party risk management program should be tailored at the outset, right? Perfect. Because, perfect. yeah. So, what the NCUA is looking for is that this program is tailored, right, to the actual credit union size, the types of services that it's seeking to provide its members. And then what the actual risk profiles are of the vendors. So that's kind of like to start, that's what examiners will look for. And then I think internally too, we kind of just touched on it there in your last question about having the personnel available to implement and execute the uh, credit union's risk management program. So is that personnel that you have internally? Is that expertise that you have internally? Or is that something that you need to outsource? That all needs to be encompassed in the program. Mark, you also had mentioned the board has to be involved, right? The program needs to be approved, needs to be reviewed, at least on an annual basis. I think that there's arguments, especially for critical vendors, that that can be reviewed on a more frequent basis. You know, and the board's ultimately responsible for critical vendor oversight too, right? They need to be updated if there's any sort of changes in that risk profile for a critical vendor. And then I think too, like the program itself, we've seen <laughs> enough over the past five years, right? That any sort of program that is that speaks to like the uh, longevity of any sort of institution, it really needs to be adaptable and resilient, right? To economic changes, to technical changes. Maybe there's a worldwide pandemic, you know, around the sure. corner. So I think considering all these things, you have to be able to modify and adapt accordingly. Generally speaking, that's kind of easy to talk about individually. You had mentioned about risk assessment, right? I think when you first get to that initial planning stage is you really need to think about what are your goals in engaging with that third party and how measurable they are, right? So it's one thing to, you want to get into a relationship with the vendor, this new cool digital service looks awesome. Your member's going to love it. But like, how do you measure that? Right? Like, how do you measure satisfaction internally at the credit union with that particular vendor? And then what's the impact on the member itself? Like, how are they enjoying it? How are you going to measure that? How are you going to define what success is in that relationship? So I think you need to consider all those things and taking into account the type of service offered, taking into account how much you're really leaning on that vendor's expertise. We talked about some of those due diligence items too. This all goes into how you create a risk profile for that vendor, right? And one thing when you had asked about what type of risk do you think about, the one thing as the lawyer in the room, right? You're always worried about how do you exit a particular relationship? And that starts at the very initial stages of engaging a vendor for sure. Sure. And so like on exiting, that's probably not as simple as I give you X number of days notice to alert you, but that would be one of the strategies relative to exiting. Do I have that right? For sure. Yeah. Yes. So it's ease of exit. It's also, we see a lot of termination fees that are tied to early termination. That needs to be, first of all, Again, this is what we get back to when we talk about negotiated terms, right? Sure. Like, yep. These terms are negotiable. They're not just set in stone that you just have to absolutely agree to. And if you do have to agree to them, that certainly goes into your consideration of risk for that particular vendor and whether you need to balance the cost benefit there, right? Of actually engaging with this vendor. So when it comes to exit strategy, for sure, you talk about how easy it is from like a timeline perspective, right? That even could be the term of the agreement itself. Is this a 10-year agreement? Is this a one-year agreement? What does that look like? The amount of notice you need to give to actually terminate the agreement. And then if there's any fees attached to that, you want to minimize that potential damage as much as possible. And then 
also you need to start thinking right even at the outset what happens if this agreement this relationship with this vendor doesn't work out in the way that we see how do we transition those services right to another vendor or do we bring them in house these are all things that need to be thought through at the early stages in the event that does happen you know as attorneys we're always the bearers of bad news right because everybody's right. all excited awesome. to get into the relationship and they don't want to think about these things but it really is important even at the outset for sure no, that makes sense. And then if you do want to exit, how do you get, and it's mission critical, exiting and winding out of a service or not doing that particular thing down the road is one thing. But if it's something that's mission critical, like you've talked about a critical system where you have to have the next group lined up and do some sort of conversion, there's all sorts of tentacles of course, that, that would play into that. So that's fascinating as well. So you talked sure. about critical systems and the risk profile, and you reminded me of some conversations that you mentioned the pandemic also, and you know how that influenced some things. I was thinking about the Silicon Valley Bank situation from a couple months back, which started to grew on a Thursday and a Friday, and the Silicon Valley's bank stock was plummeting. Then the next thing you know, on a Friday around noon Eastern, the California Banking Department and the FDIC had shut them down. And then by the end of Friday, I was getting some messages from some friends in the industry saying, hey, we just found out that we have some systems. We have eight systems that are linked to Silicon Valley Bank's subsidiaries. And the discussion was, but none of them were critical systems, but there were some like bill pay systems that were linked to it. And the devil's in the details, right? It's that kind of thing where you see your vendor fail, right? Or somebody related to the vendor that you have fail. That's one of the things that it's not that easy to control, but if you have a good system in place where you're looking at their financials or you're looking at the contracts, where you're looking at assessing, reassessing it on an annual basis, any thoughts about those concepts I just threw out there? Yeah, I think that, again, you hit the nail on the head with regards to another area focused by regulators, NCUA, state regulators, all types of federal regulators, is this concept of third parties, fourth parties, and these relationships are getting so complex. Every credit union needs to be aware of what types of parties are involved in the service relationship, right? So if you have that relationship with the vendor, who does the vendor then outsource some of those services to? That example that you just used, Mark, right? Like this could be a subsidiary you know, of another company right. that the vendor uses to provide that one particular component of the service offering. And if that service offering is critical, proper due diligence needs to be performed on that fourth party as well. And that's something, again, that NCUA is certainly looking at. It's something that the credit unions need to fully understand when they get into these relationships with vendors. They need to have it properly mapped out. They need to know who those key personnel are right at the vendor that deals sure. with that other vendor. Because I always get the question is like, how far down that line do you have to go? Right? Because <laughs> some of these relationships, it could be a vendor's vendor's vendor, right? So I always say the buck stops in that regard in the matter of criticality that the service offering actually is, right? Like if you can't use that service because that vendor relies on another vendor to provide a certain component of the offering, we're going to want to make sure that there's proper due diligence performed on that party as well. Typically, that should come from the vendor because they have the direct relationship with that fourth party. But if that vendor isn't able to provide that information, or at least in a satisfactory matter, the credit union also has to have a backup plan. The credit union, we started this conversation saying that credit unions can't outsource the risk, right? And then this is an area too, where they will need to perform adequate due diligence on that fourth party as well. You think about how complicated it's getting and 
It's not going to get easier over time. And that's probably why I listened to one of the podcasts you did a few episodes back. And I didn't realize that the other banking regulators had proposed a rule on third-party due diligence. But can you speak to that a little bit? Have you heard whether or not they're moving forward with that? If that guidance sits out there from those other regulators, any thoughts relative to how that might play in here? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, at this point, it's still proposed guidance. So there's no final rule in that area, but it does focus on third-party relationships and risk management. And it was issued by the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC. And I think you mentioned at the outset that the NCUA supervisory letter, right, is 15, 16 years old at this point, right? It still stands the test of time, given the framework that it has, that it could really be applied to any type of vendor relationship. Maybe, Mark, maybe you can speak to this more, too, because I know of your relationship with the NCUA, your previous relationship with the NCUA. The framework for that guidance is pretty consistent for the most part with the NCUA's third-party management guidance. But it does add a little bit more context. I think it does speak a little bit more to some of the digital service offerings offerings that we've seen more frequently and more recently. So I think it tries to tackle, and again, it's not a silver bullet by any means. It doesn't offer any groundbreaking information, I don't think. But I think even getting some more information in that regard, because it's like you said, when guidance is framed as the NCUA supervisory is, and it really relies on the credit union to come up with a program that is tailored to the credit union's actual risk profile, right? And how it seeks out vendor relationships. It's nice to have that flexibility, but then sometimes you want specificity too, right? Like how would you look at this particular issue, especially in this digital service area? So I think it does offer some more information from that regard. We'll see what ultimately gets passed there. Cause again, that's just a proposed rule for now. Yeah. It's just proposed and it's Not that credit unions want to start looking at proposed rules before they're final, especially when it's from another regulator, but but if you've got some spare time to read the 93-page proposal, by the way, their proposal is 93 pages, NCUA's guidance is like 12 or 14 pages, and it's principle-based. But that being said, oftentimes the other regulators will have more details there, and it's good business practice sometimes to review that. And it's okay to say to NCUA, hey, your guidance is only 16 pages, but I went over here and looked at this to see how I could make my program better. And you can do that for commercial loans. You can do it for Bank Secrecy Act. There's all sorts of individual guidance from other regulators that it makes sense to at least glance at to understand and see if there's something you can pick up with pick up on it to add it to the credit union's arsenal. One of the things I like to do, I learned this from one of the folks that assist me in what I do, but I search the word technology on their 93-page document, and technology is in their guidance 40 times that word. So you can see that there's a lot of references to that, and it relates to the complicated world that credit unions and banks are living in. So I was just going to say too, Mark, I think that you made a good point there too, right? As a credit union looking at this type of information, it's certainly in the best practice area, right? Because these are regulators that don't regulate credit unions, but we do know that these regulars tend to talk, right? And that they could look for similar things. So I think, right, from the credit union's perspective, it's nice to have an update with regards to what these regulators are looking at. It's certainly something that the NCUA and at the very least, maybe some state regulators will look at too. So it is helpful from that perspective. And it's like you said, like best practice, but won't obviously 
govern how the credit union should be running its shop. Sure, sure. And there's nothing to say that when Chairman Harper at NCUA gets a second Democratic vote that he won't look to, I doubt he'll look to regulate this, but any more than he has to. But that being said, if he wants credit, you know, his goal is to make sure credit unions are safe and sound as well. And you could see if they don't specifically refer or piggyback off the guidance of the other regulators, if it gets finalized, it's highly probable that NCUA will say, hey, a 2007 letter to credit unions needs to be updated. What can we glean from these 95 pages. So at some point in time, one year, two years, three years, four years, some of those things in that letter will apply to credit unions. So it's it's always a good opportunity to get a running head start relative to that. That's a good point. So the letter to credit unions, one thing we haven't talked about is tailored to the credit unions risk and complexity. So that's language that NCUA will put in there. And again, it's very broad, but it can help a small credit union who doesn't have a lot of third-party relationships. And then maybe the ones they have tie specifically to their share and loan general ledgers and their trial balances. And really, that's it. Their programs need to be much less complicated than maybe federal credit unions, for example, who have a plethora of more complexities in every possible way. There's the complexity of the services, and then there's the criticality of it. And as I'm thinking of that, I can almost see like a grid where you've got the columns of the criticality, then you've got the materiality on the other side. Is that a way to kind of look at this for a particular credit union or when someone approaches you relative to looking at tailoring it to the credit union and the criticality, what kind of advice do you provide them in that regard? Yeah, sure. I think that that is a good way to look at it because I think that the baseline really has to be what you do for those critical vendors, right? And then kind of make exception as to why the certain level of due diligence isn't required for vendors that are less critical. And I think it's important too to to think of that definition of criticality to begin with too, right? Like what does critical mean in this situation? I think what it really means is any sort of vendor that you rely on that could have a significant financial operational risk to the institution or could have significant impact on the types of services that you offer to your member, right? So there could be like reputational risk involved in this situation too. That's what I think. So like if that vendor goes away, could the credit union be at substantial risk for some sort of adverse situation from a risk perspective from their members or internally from an operational or financial standpoint? That's where I kind of start at, right? Like defining like what are these critical vendors? And then if you have like a landscaper, for instance, and you enter in an agreement with them to perform their services, more likely than not, they're not going to have access to the type of critical information that will bring the credit union down or significantly impact its financial standing, right? So I think when it comes from the program standpoint itself, right, you kind of start again with that baseline of what you do from a critical standpoint. It's like you said, you can have a matrix, you can set up in any way. But I think to who's involved and dealing with the different levels of vendors too, right? Because like we said, anything involving a critical vendor should really be passed all the way up to the board to review and to make sure that they fully understand what the risks are and how to act appropriately and what the credit union has done to help mitigate that risk, right? Because you can't eliminate that risk, but you can help mitigate it. So the board might not need to be involved for some of those lower level vendors for sure. And then I think too, if a vendor does have a lower risk profile, you know, the type of paperwork from a due diligence standpoint, it might not be as stringent for the materials that you need, given the risk that you're taking on in the particular relationship. 
And then that third pillar of the supervisory guidance too revolves around ongoing monitoring too, right? So that's like another area where you probably don't need to meet the same standards that you do for a critical vendor. But it's important that this guidance and I think any sort of guidance on third parties doesn't make exceptions for what your regulatory responsibilities are, regardless of the vendor. It's just the different degrees based on that criticality. Yeah, I think it's a great point that you make that the critical vendors, there should be a level of board engagement. Board governance is an area that NCUA continues to pay more and more attention to. So when NCUA can see that the board is engaged and is aware of those critical systems, when you and I chatted the first time, the controlling the narrative of the exam came up, right? And making sure that your facts are put forward. When NCUA can see in the board minutes and the board packages that the board is aware of what their critical systems are and how management is mitigating that risk, that gives them comfort that the letter that we're talking about is being complied with, that the credit union is taking it serious. And that's one way to show that. I think that that's a really good point, too, because so another thing you had asked, like what we do at our firm, and sometimes we review these policies and procedures for credit unions. And when you're reviewing them, you're it's basically almost like a checklist, right? You're kind of going to the guidance, you use that, you kind of have an idea of what best practices are. So you're kind of looking for that when you review. The most important thing, I think, too, is what you were hinting at there, Mark, is like, do you practice what you preach, right? Like, hey, look, do you guys actually follow this policy? Is the board involved in these decisions? Because if they're not, I've seen credit unions get cited for that, the fact that they don't follow their policies and procedures, even if it's there, right? Like, so, okay, so on paper, the policy and the program looks great, but are you actually adhering to that policy? That's where credit unions can get in trouble. Yeah. The classic example from back when I was the examiner was I would say, I'd rather that you have good commercial loan procedures You need both. You need the policy and you need the procedures. But if your policy is fantastic, but you don't follow it and you make a hundred million dollar loan that fails and you didn't follow the policy, that's a bad thing. Right. So you've got to have the good policy that shows that you understand it and that you've thought it through. But you've got to follow the policy or if there is an exception that comes up that makes you revisit at that annual review saying, hey, over this last year, there have been three things that have come up and we had to make minor exceptions. And as a result, we need to tweak our policy. Again, that shows good governance and it shows compliance. I was going to say, too, to touch on that. Sorry, I know we've been kind of jumping all around the guidance. I I tend to do that. (laughs) Yeah, because I think our back and forth here keeps bringing up good points in that this idea of exceptions, right? Because I'd mentioned earlier that you can never fully eliminate risk in a vendor relationship, right? You can only mitigate it. And situations we were talking about in negotiating contracts, right? There are some times when the vendor will say, we're not changing that. And that comes up, unfortunately, more frequently than not, right? So if the credit union is making a decision to go with a vendor that is contrary to its policy, I thought you brought up a good point there, Mark, in saying like, that's an exception to your policy, right? That needs to be recorded, that needs to be included in that vendor's profile. And if it is a critical vendor, which likely probably would be the case, it needs to be reported to the board. So then, right, when examiners do come in, you can explain, and you mentioned that good point there about controlling that narrative, right? Hey, look, we know that this is an area of risk. We properly assessed it. This is how we're doing our best to mitigate it. And we're aware of it. And this is in the vendor's profile. It's something that we're continuing to monitor throughout the relationship. And if for whatever reason that risk gets elevated, you need to make sure that you have the appropriate means to either amend the agreement or get out of it entirely, right? If that risk appetite becomes too large for you to remain in that relationship. Now, that makes great sense. Now, 
another way that pops into my head to, again, I'm looking at it from the former examiner mindset, which is hard for me to get away from sometimes, but I can think of some clients uh, where vendor management has been hit. When they brought me in to assist, it wasn't as organized as they could have been to the point of, it's easy for the examiner to say, well, you aren't complying because you can't show me a file of here's your 20 vendors, here's the six that are critical, and here's how we've looked at their financial condition. Here's how we've done our due diligence. So any advice relative to that side of things is the organizational side of how to have good third-party and vendor management. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think that the advice that we always give is you need a plan. Like you need to start with a plan, right? And I think you can go one of two ways, right? You can have the resources internally to properly execute your program, or you need to outsource those responsibilities in a way that you fully understand that if you're using a vendor to help you with due diligence, you need to fully understand that you still have regulatory requirements and that this is essentially an arm of the credit union that's providing your due diligence responsibilities for you. So I think when you're approaching this situation, you need to make sure that, again, because like what the NCUA or any examiner is going to look for is that you have the relative expertise to actually execute what you have on paper. That's where I would start. And if you don't think that you do, whether it's for a certain vendor or just overall, I mean, I think for a credit, you can manage relationships with all types of vendors. But if one type of vendor requires a special expertise where you think that you need to get more expertise in this area, so you're kind of outsourcing that responsibility out, all that needs to be considered internally through some sort of plan at the beginning so you don't run into issues later down the road. Got it. And so I don't know the answer to this question. Is that something you help your clients with doing or is that actually something that they can say, hey, we'd like to outsource to you to help us keep those files, do that due diligence? Where does the service that you offer uh, to CUSOs and credit unions? How does that fit this discussion? So for us, it's more on the advisory side. Okay. So yeah, so we don't handle any sort of actual due diligence responsibilities with regards to obtaining that type of information from vendors. Really where we fit in is with regards to reviewing those policies and procedures. Maybe it's more so like highlighting, like from like a high level, like, hey, again, can you guys comply with this type of information? We don't have enough access to the credit union itself to be able to perform those services. That makes um, sense. That's what I thought the answer was, but I wasn't sure. Yep. So looking at the supervisory risk letter, the risk assessment and planning, they break that down into planning, risk assessment, and financial projections. Anything on those three topics that you'd like to highlight here? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing, right, kind of combining those two, right? I think that even though there are three pillars, right, there's a lot of overlap between those pillars, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think from a due diligence standpoint, right? Not only do you need to understand a third party's business model, but you need to verify it, right? And I think, again, just to really emphasize the fact that we have been living in some turbulent times recently, you know, from like an economic standpoint, again, from like technological standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, you really need to have a means to verify the resiliency of that vendor's business model. And we had brought up with the Silicon Valley example and their subsidiaries, what is the financial viability of that vendor? And can they deliver on the promises that they're making you to provide those services either to the credit union directly or to your members? And again, it's one thing to understand that, but you also need the means to verify that accordingly, whether that's through their financial statements, a proper review of their business model to see if there's any additional items that of concern that pop up in that type of review. 
And then it obviously always helps too if the vendor has industry experience to kind of get what other credit unions assessment is of that vendor because they have presumably gone through the same process. So that's obviously helpful too. But I think, right, that financial viability is even more important now probably than it ever has been. This is a weird analogy, but it fits. You talked about checking with other credit unions, right? And which made me first think of vendor support groups where you're moving into some critical system and that group has 15, 20% of the market and the guy or the lady down the street who runs the credit union is on it and you trust their skill set. So that's a different way to kind of do some of that due diligence. And it reminded me when I first retired, I had a class B RV and I had never RV'd before. I'm not mechanical. And one of the reasons I chose the RV that I chose, which was a Winnebago Travato, A, it's the most popular one on the market, and B, there was a fabulous Facebook group where you could say, hey, my generator isn't working and I've got error code Z5, and you can post that on Facebook, and within 20 minutes, one of the people who knew the vehicle backwards and forwards would say, hey, yeah, you need to turn the vehicle off and do X, Y, and Z. That user group and the feedback I could get from other users was the most valuable thing for me to kind of get into the market. So having others in the community that understand the system where you can have that that user group, and there are user groups out there for a lot of vendors, can really provide you some synergy with a vendor that someone who only does banks and they don't understand share the difference between share and deposit, that sort of thing. That can be huge as far as effort. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And right, there is something to that notion of like the the wisdom of the crowd, right? Wisdom of the crowds, yeah. Right, right. Being able to pool that type of knowledge in any type of decision. And I think that that definitely applies to the vendor area for sure. Very good, very good. Well, Mike, this has been great. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you today? I think that we covered a very wide range. It's like I said, I had to apologize to you because I felt like I was hopping all over. I think that that was good to give a sense as to how this process probably works out in a lot of financial institutions, right? Because it's like I said, there is a lot of overlap in these three different pillars. And when it comes to having something on paper versus practical use, so I think we covered a, a good amount. Yeah, very I, good. I can't yeah, think of anything I, off the top I, of my head. I made you hop around the way I approach this, but that's how my head usually kind of works. It's you'll trigger something that make me want to go down a rabbit hole. So a lot of good content here. I appreciate your time. If one of my listeners would like to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you, Mike? Yeah, for sure. So again, Mark, I thought it was a great conversation as well. And I think when you do hop around like that, it's very engaging conversation. So I know I appreciate it on my end too. So I appreciate that. But to reach me, you can go to our website. It's www.cusolaw.com. We've been adding a lot more resources to our LinkedIn page. It's just Messick, Lauer, and Smith. So you can certainly go there to reach out to us as well. And you did mention we have a burgeoning podcast of our own called In the Queue. We have a mailbag if anybody wants to hear any sort of topics on our end. But yeah, so that covers a lot of credit union and QSO topics as well. So you can find me in all those areas for sure. That's great. Thanks so much for your time today, Mike. Yep. Thank you, Mark. It's a great conversation. You got it. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening to another episode of With Flying Colors. This is Mark Treichel signing off.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 